Welcome back to the G Truth. I have a whole bunch of stuff for today. I have an interesting new G League rule that's going to be implemented this season and, you know, obviously evaluated at the end of the season. But it's the G League, but that does mean that it can be implemented into the NBA, which is why I'm going to talk about it. I have Dwayne Haskins' topic after he just had his debut game against the New York Giants this past Sunday. And why I don't think it's a good idea for him to play. And last topic of the day is kind of be the one and only Gardner Minshew and why I believe in him and the Jaguars. But as I've been trying to do for my intros now, or at least since last week, I'm going to say uh, an artist that I really like, an album or so, um, and then a biography that inspired me, or I really, really liked. So I'm going to start off with the artist, Lovely, Lovely the Band. Um, they only have one album out. They're currently on tour right now, I believe. Um, their album is called Finding It Hard to Smile. Really, for me, I love that whole album. It's really, really good. Um, there, there's some classic ones like Broken, These Are My Friends. Um, there's some other ones that are kind of under, under the radar that I really like. You're Whatever, Walk From Here, Everything I Can Never Say To You. Those ones I really, really like. So I've been listening to their album for the past couple days. It's really good. I enjoy it. Now for the biography that I, that I wanted to talk about for quite some time is Robert Downey Jr. Now you may know him as Iron Man and as part of the Avengers. But before any of that could happen, before he started off in the Iron Man series in 2007, he was a child actor. He had some little acting gigs, but never really got onto like, the big movies until he went through this turmoil right here that I'm talking about. He grew up around um, a lot of drugs, and that's mainly because of his father and it's alleged, um, uh, allegedly, according to Robert Downey Jr., he was exposed to that at a young age, at like eight years old, where he was allowed by his father to smoke marijuana because his dad had that and would do that. And for him, it became a weird sort of bonding experience with his father, as messed up as it is, and it makes sense. However, starting in 1996, he was arrested for drug possession as he had marijuana, uh, cocaine, heroin, as well as a handgun in his car, I believe, when he was arrested. And from 1996, when he was 31 years old, all the way to 2001, he was struggling with it. He kept on going in and out of jail, um, got bailed out a couple times, but always found a way back into jail with some sort of drug addiction again, and uh, went to rehab multiple, multiple times. But finally, in 2001, his wife at the time left him and took his child with him. Well, with her, I mean. And at that point, he finally said, yeah, I can't do this anymore. And he said in an interview before um, that it's not so much for him this, uh, difficult to completely remove drugs from his life or go clean, but to have the courage to ask for help and to be able to start off, to be able to do it, to start off and want to do it, 
rather than doing it itself, want to want to do it. So for me, although it's short and I really wanted to focus on that part rather than his uh, movies, because that part really inspires me of how he realized in himself that he was doing something wrong and he corrected it as hard as it was for him to do. He corrected it. He looked in, he looked, he reflected and he changed his life and I mean, he's a millionaire now, so. It clearly worked out for the better. And also just as an outlook for the future for this Thursday, I'm gonna have a video on the one and only Boston College legend, even though now we're three and two, our football team's three and two. Yeah, we lost Wake Forest as well um, this past Saturday. I'm gonna have a video on the one and only Boston College legend, Doug Flutie. And not necessarily a film analysis, but more of why he didn't make it in the NFL. Why his trip to the NFL was really, really short and not that great. And in the CFL, it was spectacular. I'm gonna have a video on the MLB postseason. Uh, my prediction, I'm not a big baseball guy unless it comes to the playoffs. I'm more of a casual fan for, for baseball, but I still can look at trends, and believe me, trends tell the whole story most of the time. So I'm going to have a video on that and my predictions based off of trends and where I think it's going to go. As well as a, the last topic for Thursday on who I believe is the best running back in the league. The best running back. So that should be very, very interesting. And I think that not this Thursday, but going forward, I want to do things like um, spread predictions, uh, like for the NFL games, um, as well as more film analysis. Now, I don't have the mind of a quarterback. I never play that position. I usually play wide receiver when I'm playing with friends because I'm just better at that. Um, but I want to do more film analysis, and I want to really dive into it. So I'll probably start off... Um, more on the offensive or defensive line. So first thing that comes to mind is Shaquille, I think is Shaquille Barrett, I want to say, um, of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who has nine sacks in the past four weeks, which is insane. Pretty sure ties a record. Um, yeah, so I want to do some of that. So now let's hop into the good stuff with the G League free throw rules. The G League just passed a trial run rule, and I think that while it's not bad and it's not great either, I think it'll do what it actually has the purpose of doing. So let me explain first. The rule for this G League rule is revolving, around, uh, is revolving around the free throw line. So the way it's set up is that rather than shooting for, say, to get fouled on a three-pointer, instead of shooting the three free throws, you end up shooting one free throw that is worth three points. And that will hold true for all fouls based on where you're fouled. Shooting a jumper, layup, um, if it's a layup or a dunk and you get fouled on that and you miss it, one free throw worth two points. Same thing holds for an and one. You, you go for a layup, 
or you shoot a three and it becomes a one free throw shot for one point on top of the basket that counted. So that's the general rule, but it does not apply to the last two minutes of the fourth quarter as well as the entirety of overtime. Now the reason that was given for this was to improve game flow within the G League, within the basketball games, so that you don't have, you know, always 30, 30, 40 seconds shooting free throws and you reduce the length of games. So for example, uh, especially, especially for the G League, their average game is two hours, five minutes, and it's predicted that with this new rule, they'll shave off six to eight minutes from a game, which is a lot. And that'll put them just under the two hour barrier, right between their allotted time rather than going over the actual time. So there's probably some extra cost benefit that goes into it, but the main part of it is dealing with the game, improving the game flow. So I'm not gonna look at this from a G League perspective and how it's gonna influence the G League, but more of how if it gets implemented into the NBA, how it would influence the NBA. So like I said before, I don't think it's gonna be good or bad. I think it's gonna be generally fine up until around the fourth quarter, really. I think that arguments made about, oh, players are gonna get tired. I think it will actually incentivize better substitution strategies uh, for coaches and it can make playoff games a lot more about depth than star-studded teams. Um, I think that it can keep games interesting and fast-paced, such as if you're down by 10, maybe you get a few fouls there that might not be good, but then the other team misses some free throws, and boom, you're right back on it. You're back right there because it is noted that you're more likely to miss the first free throw than miss the second or third ones. In other words, you're more likely to make the second and third free throw than the first one. So it's predicted that you're going to have the same, if not more, missed free throws. And I think that it also should generally be fine in the NBA unless they don't get this freedom of movement or motion uh, rule tightened down and a bit more understandable. Because once that happens and then, then you're at less fouls and it's going to be back to like a normal steady pace of fouls rather than probably people flopping, trying to get into the bonus early, get one free throw to, uh, for two points. Quickly like that. Now, I think that in the fourth quarter, because it's in the last two minutes, that it goes back to the regular rules where it's, you shoot that amount of free throws, like two free throws for two points. So it becomes one point for each free throw. I think it, it probably will cause early fouling. So maybe at the four minute mark, people are going to start fouling and stuff like that. Especially if they're down by 10, 15 or more points. That I think is going to be a last resort just to try for a prayer to get back into the game, which doesn't really involve skill, really, which is not really what the NBA is going for. But I do think, even though that will induce sort of a hack a shack mentality early on, I think that'll just be early on, and I think eventually um, it, it won't be much of a problem. Uh, man, mainly because I believe that with teams getting into the bonus quicker because of that, because you still got to get into the bonus to actually have those 
teams shoot free throws, I think that once you get into that bonus early on, I think it's going to kill your chance of having those comebacks. It's still going to happen. It will happen. If it, gets in, it will happen if it gets implemented into the NBA. But I think it's going to be less likely. So I think as time goes on, if it gets implemented into the NBA, it's going to start off rough. But as time goes on, it's going to be generally okay. And I think that overall, it's a pretty interesting innovative idea that the NBA can take a look at and take into consideration, maybe do after the G League tries it, a one-year trial of it. Now, my only problem with it is that if that were to happen, it would sadly make comparisons of previous statistics regarding free throws, points, all that stuff, fouls. And and, and uh, if it gets implemented, the nowadays statistics regarding points, free throws, all that stuff, it would be hard to compare the two because it would once again be different eras. Like when you had different fouls uh, added on to today's NBA, like freedom of motion. Yeah, it racked up some fouls, but you could still compare the two. But now if this were to get implemented it'd be a bit more difficult to compare the two, and it could be more of a reason to show, hey, basketball from however long ago is way better than nowadays. Which probably is not the case. I would say that it depends on who you are and when you grew up in and what you really, really like to watch. But I think that overall, this is an interesting, innovative rule that the NBA should take into consideration and take a look at. I'm not going to tell you about Dwayne Haskins. This is going to be fun. I believe Dwayne Haskins is traveling down a dangerous road that could make him end up similar, similar to Josh Rosen. Yes, I know Josh Rosen is in his second year, but the two already have quite a few similarities. They both start off as a backup behind a somewhat veteran quarterback, uh, Dwayne Haskins behind Case Keenum, who has been on five teams so far, Sam Bradford for Josh Rosen, who is on four teams up to that point and is now, of course, out of the league. Josh Rosen made his debut week three as a, as a last resort substitution, thrown into the fire against the Chicago Bears. And Dwayne Haskins made his debut against Daniel Jones in week four against the Giants. And the really nearly could have been the exact same situation had he started week three. And he almost did in week three against, you guessed it, the Bears. So there are really close similarities. And for their starts, Haskins was horrible. Absolutely horrible. The only notable statistic that I can probably write down is that he had three interceptions. Same with Josh Rosen, one interception. For Josh Rosen, he has a bit more of an excuse. He was thrown into the fire, horrible situation. Dwayne Haskins, kind of the same thing. Thrown into the fire again. A bit. Not really, because it was the Giants. And the Giants don't really have a great defense, like the Chicago Bears do. But still, young quarterback thrown into the fire without 
any sort of um, preparation or without any sort of anyone telling him beforehand, hey, you're, you're going to start this game, which is what the Giants did with Daniel Jones. They had him play from the beginning to the end rather than throw him in in the third quarter or second quarter or whatever. And you look at their situations right now. Offensive line for both teams is horrible. For for Josh Rosen when he was with the Cardinals, the Cardinals had one of the worst offensive lines. Dwayne Haskins, the only one on the offensive line that's actually good is Trent Williams, but guess what? He's holding out, so the offensive line is not protecting him any, anytime soon. Um, they don't really have any weapons for their teams. Dwayne Haskins, not really. Josh Rosen, when he was with the Cardinals, Larry Fitz, you could argue maybe Christian Kirk, but he was also a rookie, so you don't really have that veteran presence aside from Larry Fitz, which Josh Rosen did have, but for Dwayne Haskins, not really. And for both teams, the coach was on the hot seat. Jay Gruden is potentially going to get fired sometime this season, if not this week. And the coach for Josh Rosen, the head coach, was fired immediately after the season. Uh, they don't have a great front office for both teams. For Dwayne Haskins, uh, the um, owners, not very well liked. GM, not that great. Cardinals front office is a mess. Um, pretty much everything from the top down is pretty bad for both teams. For the Cardinals with Josh Rosen and Dwayne Haskins with the Redskins. And also with Josh Rosen, you could tell that the that the owner, the the coach, not not necessarily the coach, um, GM. That's that's what I was looking for. The GM and and the owner didn't really believe in him. And so he ended up being a one-year stand-in until they got their, their guy now, Kyler Murray. And now you're having rumors of Haskins maybe not having the full trust of the owner, or the owner wasn't f fully sold on him. And I think that that's just cooking up for a bad recipe. At this point, you can clearly see that Haskins is set for failure. His first game, not only thrown in the fire, but against Daniel Jones. Now, that's probably part of the, that's probably part of the reason why he was thrown in so early. That's not even a last resort, but thrown in just because the owner wanted to see him play because he saw Gardner Minshew, he saw Daniel Jones, Kyle Allen tearing the league up already. Even though Daniel Jones didn't have a great game against the Redskins. He wanted to see what Daniel Haskins could do. But guess what? That's dangerous. That's dangerous because he doesn't have the right pieces, like I mentioned before. But also, you saw Daniel Jones in his debut. Two touchdowns, two rushing touchdowns. Two passing touchdowns, two rushing touchdowns. I mean, that's great. But now, you set him up for fail. You set Haskins up for failure by having those expectations of him and to have him play that well against the Giants, and Daniel Jones by throwing him into the fire. Second game, he's probably going to start the, this week against the Patriots. We don't know how that's going to go. It's going to be morally and mentally destructive. He's 
you're throwing him into the fire against teams that he's not set up to play well against. And then the third game is going to be against the Dolphins. And yeah, you can say, you know what, that, that's good for him because it's now a moral booster. But guess what? I believe at this point, he might even lose to the Dolphins. Isn't that poetic? Josh Rosen on the Dolphins beating Dwayne Haskins, who I believe will end up like Josh Rosen if this continues. And if he loses to the Dolphins, guess what? With all the jokes going around the Dolphins, the joke will now be on the Redskins. And at that point, the it, the effects will be enormous. All the faith that they put in Dwayne Haskins when they drafted him will be truly undone. And at that point, he will probably end up like Josh Rosen. A one-year rental. So at this point, just let him sit. Ride it out with Case Keenum. Let Dwayne Hassan sit, learn, get someone in there that, that can communicate with him on the offensive side and really, really help him because he's young. That's what you want to do with young quarterbacks. Make sure there's a good offensive coach there or a head coach that calls the offensive plays, that has a true connection with him, and can really help him excel. And really, Redskins, remember, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, uh, Drew Brees, really almost all the remaining quarterbacks in the league, aside from these younger ones, Baker Mayfield, all sat. Didn't play their first year. Except for Baker Mayfield, who was thrown into the fire, mainly because Tyra Taylor got injured. But that's a different story. Patience is okay. And at this point, it's probably best. Be patient. And if you don't, guess what? You're going to draft another quarterback this year. Alright, I'm going to take a little break really quickly because i got a huge segment left with Gardner Minshew and the Jaguars. Mainly talking about Gardner Minshew and not an analysis of how well he's playing, but more of his story, his leadership, and why I think that and why I think that's going to have a positive effect on the Jaguars and how they'll play for the rest of the season. So I'll be right back. Okay, now I'm going to talk after my break about Gardner Minshew. As we all know, Gardner Minshew, or like, or how I like calling him, the shoe, is taking the NFL by storm. And it's not with his talent, which he does have, or his throwing power, or his statistics, which he does have. It's with Minshew mania. He's adored by all the fans. He has a mustache. He has the George that became a meme of sorts. And yes, he's special. He's talented. He can throw the ball. He has a zip on it. He's precise. He doesn't force throws. He has high IQ. He makes the right and smart reads. From what I can tell, he is notorious for being a hard worker, studying game film all the time, etc., etc., etc. 
but that's not what I'm here to talk about. I'm going to talk about why I believe he's destined for greatness. Not from a analytical point of view or from a, oh, he does this great and that'll make him unstoppable point of view. But from the point of what really, really makes him special. His leadership. And this is part of the reason why, and I'm going to say why I liked Baker Mayfield coming out of Oklahoma. Because of his leadership. And part of the charisma. Yes, he has the work ethic, and that's great. But we're looking for that in all quarterbacks. All quarterbacks should have a great work ethic, just like Gardner Minshew. And like I said, what makes him very, very special is his leadership. And, and in order to understand it, we have to look at his past, look at his story, look at his history, what makes him him in the NFL. He is a hardworking kid. He, is a, he was a student athlete. He excelled in being a student and being an athlete. He went to Brandon High School. Um, he made it onto the team, the varsity team, as a freshman, which you don't really see very often. And he made his debut game as a freshman when the starting quarterback, I believe a junior, named Trey Poke, broke his arm. Does that ring any bells, or can you kind of see any similarities between then, high school, and now? Oh, and guess what? He threw for three touchdowns in the second half. And yes, they lost. But guess what? That's not what the coaches took away from it. The coaches took away from it that while they were trying to figure out what to do with this freshman who is who wasn't tall, they really liked, but he's a freshman, 14 years old. He was calm, cool, collected, and guess what? When your quarterback is like that, when the leader of the team is like that, it infects everyone. From the teammates to the coaches, to the whole staff, to the fans. That hey, even though they lost, I got this. I got this. And outside of football, in high school, in high school, he was a huge community guy. He's very charismatic, goofy, down to earth, just like how he is today, from what we can see on the field. And his mannerisms and in interviews, and the way he carries himself. Very positive, charismatic, down to earth. Very goofy as well. He started a panini club, and there's a whole story on that. Um, he coached a 9- to 10-year-old city recreational football team. He boosted the um, church's youth basketball program, made it more popular within the area that he was living in. Um, great community guy, great person. And you can tell that just by seeing the way that he carries himself. But despite how well he played in high school, every, everything he's done on a an academic level, he wasn't very—he wasn't like that at all. He was glanced over by the bigger schools, and the main reason why was because of his height. Same reason why Kyler Murray wasn't looked up very highly, or Baker Mayfield, or Drew Brees, or any other small quarterback. 
Same goes for Gardner Minshew in this case. He wasn't six feet tall. And he said, all right, well, I'm not going to one of the bigger schools, obviously, at this point, because they're not recruiting me. So he decided that he was going to walk on at Troy University. However, he was not named the starter. Because he was not named the starter, he didn't want to wait three years until the quarterback at the time left or for some sort of thing to happen where he got injured because you never want that to happen. He decided to leave Troy and wanted to prove himself at Northwestern Mississippi Community College. Community College. Junior College. And there, it was all about proving himself and being down to getting down to business. And he won the um, NJCAA, which is basically the National Junior College Championship. He won the championship. And from there, although he proved himself, he was still passed on by the bigger name schools because he wanted to transfer from from a, an NWM at CC, Northwestern Mississippi a Community College. He wanted to transfer from there to some other big schools so he could really get his name out there and, of course, make it to the NFL because who doesn't want to go to the NFL? Again, no big name colleges called him or anything like that. They went and talked to some of the players on his team, three of them, but none of them were Gardner Minshew. And so he decided that he would transfer to East Carolina University where he would eventually get his um, communications degree and graduate from there um, in two years. But he didn't play much his first year. He had a couple snaps and he played the last two games. Um, and then second year, he finally got his start. And throughout that whole time, he split um, starts with the other quarterback at the time, Thomas Sirk. And they were actually roommates. Now, according to Tom, Tom, now according to Thomas Sirk, and what he said about Garner Minshew, and these are direct quotes. He took the time to help me learn their system, even though they were competing for the starting quarterback job. Garner Minshew took his time to help a competing quarterback understand the system, learn what was going on. Yes. Again, Thomas Sirk says that he is a team guy. And that's exactly what you want from your quarterback. To really go out of his way to help anyone on the team. To help anyone and everyone on the team. No matter what's going on. And after a couple games, Garmin was benched in that second year at East Carolina University where Thomas Sirk ended up taking over for a bit. And you can't really blame Gardner Minshew. They had a pretty bad defense at, at East Carolina. Um, but after, I believe, six games of Thomas Sirk starting, Gardner Minshew was right back in the fold, right back to the starting quarterback position. And he finished off the season the last three games with 70% completion percentage. 1,023 yards, 7 touchdowns, 4 interceptions, which is pretty good. Pretty good, aside from, from the interceptions, it's really good. However, his team gave up over 100 points within those three games. 
something like that. Their defense was really bad, so you can't really put how bad that team was in their record on Gardner Minshew. But he did graduate the same year, and he decided that he would go on as a graduate transfer, which meant by the NCAA rules, he could go to whatever school he wanted, and he wouldn't have to sit out a year like any other transfer would have to. So when you look at this, it really was his last chance to prove himself, make a name for himself, get himself out there, get into the NFL. One last chance at his dream. And during this time, Nick Saban reached out to Gardner Minshew with an additional offer um, of coming onto the team, probably not being the starter, but being on the team. And and if it doesn't work out, he can be the uh, graduate assistant coach for the Alabama football team. But he went to the Washington State University, where we know he went to, and brought them to glory once again, um, because he, according to what was said by his head coach uh, at Washington State University, who recruited him there and persuaded him to come there, is that he didn't want to. It was either playing football, starting for your team throwing the ball around, scoring touchdowns, or standing on the sideline with a clipboard. There's nothing wrong with standing on the side with a clipboard, but that's not what Gardner Minshew wanted. He wanted to make a name for himself, to go out there and prove himself once again, and try to make it to the big leagues. And during this time, Washington State University had taken a tremendous hit in their community and also their football program, their quarterback, um, before Garmin who got there, Tyler Halinski um, took his own life. So it was, and he was later diagnosed with stage one CTE. So it was a big hit for the Washington State uh, University, um, for the whole school, for the whole community, as well as the football program. So of course it's tough. It's tough. But once Gardner Minshew got there and started tearing apart the whole NCAA, he brought life back into the community there, back into the football program that was hurting, back into the community that was hurting and uh, mourning over the loss of Tyler Helinski. And he became a hero in that sense. He tied and broke records. He was fifth in the Heisman uh, Voting, uh, he won the Alamo, Alamo Bowl. No, I said uh, Alamo Bowl against I believe Iowa State. Uh, he was the Pac-12 um, Offensive Player of the Year. He was he won the John United's Golden Arm Award, which shows out to the best, um, I believe, graduate transfer slash senior quarterback. And he finally got what he wanted. He finally got noticed by the Jaguars. He was the sixth-round pick by the Jaguars. And he made his debut, famously, as we all know, against the Kansas City Chiefs, where Nick Foles, similar to Trey Pope back in high school, went out with an injury. Except for Nick Foles and ended up being a broken clavicle. But just like back in high school, Gardner Minshew came in, 
poised, calm, ready, prepared. He threw two touchdowns and one pick, but had an 88% completion percentage. So right out of the gate, already breaking records. That 88% was the highest by any quarterback in his debut, and also a record for uh, the Jaguars franchise by a quarterback. And now he has two wins under his belt. Um, one, one against Tennessee, who the Jaguars hadn't beaten in the past three games or something like that. And also one against Denver, where he made some tremendous plays. Minshew magic all over the place. Um, went down, got a game-winning field goal with Josh Lambeau. Spectacular. Um, and you can tell by the way that he is and the way that he plays. He still has that charisma. He still has that calmness. He still has that poise. He still has that hope that everything will be fine. He has that calm, cool, collected vibe about him. He still has that goofiness to him. You saw him with... Um, for who it was, but the Napoleon Dynamite character, um, Uncle Rico, I'm pretty sure. You might have to correct me on that, but he still has all that, and that groomed, and, and, that, and that came from, and groomed him all the way from when he was a kid in high school, from college to all the turmoil, from all, to all the struggles, all that, till now, and all that charisma, hope, goofiness, all that's infectious to everyone, just like how it was in high school when he was calm, cool, collected, how he, how it helped the coaches trust him and understand that, hey, this kid is for real. It's infectious to all the coaches because they can now trust him to, to succeed. His teammates that can trust him also, and he can build a chemistry with them. It's the fans that can trust him to lead this organization forward to win games and to be able to put their faith in him to trust that he will contribute to wins. And with all that, it allows him to be himself and to have the whole team rally behind him. And guess what? When, it, when you have a leader that believes in himself and in the whole team believes in you, and the team responds and rallies behind him and believes in themselves, as well as their quarterback. That is a team that is united. And that is a team that is willing to fight for each other. Where no matter how much they are down, they believe that they can always win. And that is a team that can never be wounded or, or strayed from a path. That is a team that will do whatever it takes to win. That is a united team. And that's why I said on this very podcast, I think maybe right when Nick Foles got injured, so that's week two, so like two weeks ago, that I still had faith in the Jaguars. I had them going 9-7 and seven this season with Nick Foles, and I still believe that. I still have faith in them without Nick Foles. Because they got Gardner Minshew. And I saw what he was able to do. I saw him against Kansas City on TV. And I said, the Jaguars will be just fine. Yes, they lost. They lost in his debut against 
forgot what team it was in high school when he made his debut. They lost, but he played fine. That's that's why I still believe in him. That's why I still believe. In, that's why I still believe in that team. And that's why I believe in who I, what I'm gonna call the shoe. And if you have a chance, watch a Jaguars game. Watch one. Because I'm telling you, once you watch it, you watch Gardner Minshew, he's like the Pied Piper. And guess what? Once you start watching him, you will be charmed. And you'll believe in, in him, too. So that'll be it for the G-Truth. Uh, like I said, I do have a plan for this upcoming Thursday when I record, and it'll go out on Friday, and that I want to talk about Doug Flutie, the MLB postseason, and who I believe is the best running back in the league. I might not do one of those, maybe, but that is the plan. And going forward, I want to do some film analysis, probably with the offensive line and defensive line. And I will also continue doing the uh, artist slash band, whatever you want to call it, as well as a biography of some person. Anyways, thank you for listening to the G-Truth. Peace out.